This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, on Jagera and Turrbal land. And me, Shelby Trainer on Gadigal land. Today, doctors warn about environmental decline and the risk to human health, how to help your teenager quit vaping, promising research on an RSV vaccine for pregnant women, but first... Voice assistants like Siri from Apple and Amazon's Alexa or the Google Assistant are on the rise to the point where if you're not able to use one, you risk getting left behind. Shelby, do you use any voice assistants? I didn't until we started working on this story, but then I discovered my Android phone's answer to Siri, which is Bigsby. Okay. Hi, my name is Bigsby. I can talk and I can rap. Go ahead. Ask me to rap for you. <laughs> did you Did you ask it to rap for you? No, I said no thank you, Bigsby. Look, that's probably for the best. Uh, but, like, so much of our digital world relies now on these voice-activated assistants. I actually tried to come up with some numbers on it and it's changing so fast that it's really hard to come up with good numbers. One study in 2018 said there were 1.35 million smart speakers in Australian households. Uh, by the time there was a 2021 article, it said 26% or more than 5.5 million Australians owned a smart speaker, up from 17% in 2020. So it's definitely rising quickly. And I use them at my house and it's become something I take for granted. Along with something else I take for granted, being able to hear. Yeah, this isn't something I'd actually thought about before. How do people who are deaf manage this voice activated tech, especially since it's becoming so ubiquitous? I kind of wonder if Siri would know. Hmm, I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? We're going to have to speak to some actual people. Let's start with... Hi, I'm Dr Jessica Court at the University of Queensland. Jessica is a technology developer, specifically technology that can make life better for people from groups that are traditionally marginalised. Most of my research has focused on co-design or participatory design with deaf people. And in the current project, we're working with deaf adults to design a personal assistant that understands Auslan, which is Australian Sign Language. So for folks who've got a Google Home or an Amazon Alexa at home, it's the same kind of idea, but instead of talking to it, deaf folks should be able to sign to it, have it understand the command and sign back a sensible response saying, yes, I've done that, or here's an update on the information you've asked for. As Jessica said, the project has involved co-designing with deaf people. My role in this project has involved recruiting deaf people to This is Julie, a research assistant in the project. She's speaking through interpreter Adele Greedy-Vogel. We had 20 questions to ask in terms of what they thought about the product, if they would be willing to buy a personal assistant, and explaining how the product would work. It's important for deaf people to be involved in projects like this because we know what works well, we know what doesn't work well. Hearing people can't make decisions on designing technology by themselves. We really need to work together. So what do deaf folks want out of a virtual assistant? Do they even want one at all? A lot of deaf participants that we interviewed were really keen to buy this type of product. And that's because they want to become more independent. 
Could you imagine every day when a deaf person wants to know what's happening around them? Like, for example, the weather, the news, emergency announcements. They miss out on that information. There are other possible features, like a notification system that would alert deaf people to interesting sounds going on in the house or in the neighbourhood, like dogs barking or car alarms going off. Sometimes they might have to ask their next-door neighbour what's happening. With a product like this, they would be able to ask someone in their home and it would be able to sign back. That's equal access for deaf people, genuine equal access. And ensuring equal access also means a virtual assistant must take into account differences between signers. Because everybody signs very differently. So, for example, with a simple sign like I know, a deaf person will sign it in a different location in a more casual context. Sometimes a computer trying to identify that might miss that or ask me to repeat my sign. And I can imagine that would be quite frustrating. Adele, our interpreter, is also a research assistant on the project. I identify as a coder, child of deaf adults. Both my parents are profoundly deaf, so they both sign. Uh, they don't use speech or anything like that in the home. So I grew up signing with Auslan as my first language. She says the project flips the script on how accessibility tools are often designed. I think a lot of technology in this space, for example, the signing gloves or the glove translation or recently I saw glasses that will turn English into captions. And I think that a lot of that is so that hearing people can understand deaf people. There's always an emphasis on hearing people being able to understand and having access to all the information. We really need to change that framing because it's deaf people that need the access, not hearing people. So what does it actually take to build a tool like this? Like Siri has the full weight of the Apple empire behind it. Can a scrappy team from a university have the grunt to produce something that will actually work in a way that's useful? What we need from an AI perspective is a lot of data because that's how these machine learning systems work. You need lots of people providing lots of data so that the computer systems can learn all the variations in the way people will sign the same set of commands. There are a couple of different ways, for example, that you can sign turn the lights on or turn the lights off. We also then need high power computers in order to train the machine learning systems because you're essentially throwing the data at it and letting the computer figure out what are the patterns that are important. So that needs lots of processing power and lots of time. For this project, because we've got a avatar, which signs back to deaf people. We also therefore need an avatar as well as the staff to work on this project. So in addition to myself, we've got a data scientist, an animator and two research assistants working on the project, as well as a team of about 15 deaf folks who are our advisory panel. In terms of timing, the team expects to have something called a minimum viable product later this year. Something that's more user-friendly is still several years away. Here's Julie speaking through Adele again. Deaf people don't want to become codependent on hearing people. If we have a personal assistant device, we can ask it 
anything, any information that we wanted to know, we could ask a device in our home and it would give us a lot of independence and knowledge that I wouldn't previously have been exposed to. Julie Lyons finishing off that story. You're listening to The Health Report on RN. So we've heard a lot in the last few years about this idea of one health, the idea that humans and the environment interact with each other and have impacts for us and impacts for the environment in terms of our health. But it's kind of an esoteric idea. But a recent article in the Medical Journal of Australia is really spelling out what lies ahead for us if we don't start taking environmental health seriously when it comes to our own health as humans. And one of the authors is Dr. Catherine Barakoff, who joins me right now. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So we'll dig into the the what and why in a second, but top line, like how are environmental and human health interlinked? Well, I think what we hope to show in our paper was that there are just really so many ways that our health and our environment are interconnected. I think at a very basic level, our natural environment is really our life support system. So we need our natural environment to give us the air we breathe, the water that we drink. It's incredibly critical for our food security. Um, But it also does things like contribute to our mental health, our psychological well-being. Those are really the key things that we were trying to get across in our report, that there are so many ways that we depend on on the world around us. Yeah, so can we step through the main points of the paper? You mentioned food. You also mentioned medicines. Yeah, so in terms of our food security, you know, we need healthy soils in order to grow nutritious foods and diverse foods that contribute to our health. Pollinators are responsible for a huge amount of the food that we eat the birds, the bees, all the different animals that help our food grow in the way it needs to. As our environment declines, things like our pollinators suffer and then in turn our food security suffers. Um, Another point that we raised was to do with medicines. So it's not well known that really the vast majority of the medicines that we use today are derived from our natural environment. So, you know, all sorts of medicines that people commonly take every day have their origins in nature. And the problem is that when we lose our natural environment, we lose all this future potential to discover new medicines. You mentioned sort of losing the natural environment and really what you're talking about in this paper is the idea of biodiversity, like the sort of numbers of different kinds of creatures around. And Australia really has a lot of that at the moment, but it's declining. Yeah, so I mean, biodiversity as a term really refers to the incredible variability among living organisms. So, you know, that's diversity within and among species um, and also within ecosystems. And one of the reasons we sort of wrote this report was that relatively recently, the latest Australian State of the Environment report was released. And what this showed was that Australian ecosystems are really in a lot of trouble. So of all of the species that we have, the number that is threatened with extinction has increased by about 8% since the previous report was written five years ago. And about 20% of our ecosystems are showing signs of collapse now. And so, yeah, our environment is really in a lot of trouble. And, and what we hope to show was that this is not just an environmental issue. This really matters for people. Yeah, it's one of those things that you kind of know that we should be taking care of our environment. It feels like a very noble thing to do. And what you're sort of highlighting here is that it's, for humans, it really is an existential threat for us as well. 
Yeah, it is absolutely not just an environmental issue. It is a human health issue. Can we talk about infectious diseases? Because I think that is one of the areas where we do hear the interaction between human health and environmental health sort of coming together because we think about spillover events from animals, which has caused, I mean, in Australia, we've seen Hendra virus. Of course, there was SARS-1 and probably SARS-2 as well. Yeah, so I think this is sort of front of mind for a lot of people since the COVID-19 pandemic and there's been increasing awareness that when we do degrade our natural environment and when we clear natural habitats, what that does is it upsets the natural balance and it means that animals and species that would normally be contained and healthy and doing the job they need to do in their natural environment come closer to people. And so all of the interactions change and, and what that does is mean that they're is an increased risk for this idea of spillover where infections that normally live within animals can be transferred to humans. You know, obviously there's all sorts of things we need to do to prevent future pandemics like the ones we've just had, but, you know, a really critical thing is that we need to stop destroying our natural environment. You know, I think an analogy we've used for the medical community is that if we don't do this, it's very much like treating the symptoms of a disease without looking at the root cause. Oh, yeah, very good analogy if you're talking to doctors. So this is published in the Medical Journal of Australia. What do you hope doctors in Australia, what kind of influence do they have in this space? I think firstly, we felt it was really important that this group whose primary mandate is to look after the health of people, that they be alerted to the fact that this is a health issue, that we need to know about it and and then to act upon it. Um, You know, I think doctors play a number of roles in society. I mean, firstly, in general, they're a relatively trusted voice. And I think we also have the ability to reach audiences that other groups like environmentalists might not be able to reach. And so by us sort of recognising that this is a health issue and treating it as such as we would any other health issue, then hopefully we have the ability to make, I think, a really significant contribution to turning some of this around. So your article kind of calls for review of environmental law and lots of sort of big picture policy things. Beyond doctors as well, like what do I do in response to what you've put out? Well, I think that by us recognising that this is incredibly critical for our health and wellbeing and then calling on our decision makers to act appropriately, you know, that's how change really happens. Um, You know, and that includes being aware of the policies and the decisions that are being made by the people that we vote for. You know, also day to day, there's all sorts of decisions that people can make in terms of things they buy, what they choose to do and consume that can influence the natural environment. And so I think it's just in every decision that we make, realising that there are these environment health links and that we should try to act accordingly. Yeah. uh, I mean, it's not actually where you started either. You're a nephrologist or you're a kidney doctor. How did you come to be in this space? Um, I mean, I I suppose like most doctors, I spent a long time studying and I had my head down doing that for many years. But when I finally finished all of my medical study, I suppose I looked up a bit (laughs) and started thinking more about the world around me. And I actually became really quite quickly overwhelmed by the extent and the breadth of environmental problems facing us. And it was bad timing in a way because I'd done all this study and then I had a bit of a career crisis because I couldn't actually really see the point in trying to look after the health of people when really our sort of foundational support system was in so much trouble. And, you know, I thought about what to do from there and and realised that probably my best place to contribute would be looking at the interlinkages between health and our environment. 
Um, and, you know, and luckily there are lots of them. And I think, you know, a lot of work that can be done from within healthcare in this space, you know, the, the advocacy that I've talked about, but also looking at how we actually deliver healthcare in ways that don't contribute to the problems. It's a real wicked problem. Catherine, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you for having me. Dr. Catherine Barraclough is a consultant nephrologist at Royal Melbourne Hospital and a member of Doctors for the Environment Australia. So, Tegan, we've spoken on the show recently about vaping and calls for tighter regulations, which the government is considering. And that's because despite technically being prescription only, many young people are getting their hands on nicotine vaping products and becoming addicted. A few weeks back, I spoke to young people about their vaping habits, and most of them started in high school or earlier. So it got me thinking about what it takes to quit at that age and how parents can best support them. I spoke to Associate Professor Michelle John Janellis from the Centre for Behaviour Change at the University of Melbourne. Thanks for having me. So, Michelle, what should parents do when they find out their teenager has been vaping? Because the first instinct, I reckon, for a lot of people would be to kind of reprimand the teenager, to tell them off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's sort of in the parents' nature sometimes when they find out that their child has been doing something that they know is harmful or that's silly. But we know that that doesn't work. We know that lecturing them and reprimanding them just won't work. What that means is that often then they won't come to you again for anything that might be a little bit more serious. And so what we want parents to be doing is creating an environment in which their child feels safe coming to them. If your child is coming to you and talking to you about their vape that's actually a really good sign. It means you have an open relationship with them and they feel comfortable enough to do that. You certainly don't want to be breaking that trust that they have in you by then lecturing them and reprimanding them. You've written in the conversation about what parents can do when their teenager wants to quit vaping, but what can parents do when their teenager doesn't want to quit vaping? Yeah, so I mean, teenagers do things in their own time. And I know that sort of the instinct of parents will be to say, actually, no, you absolutely have to stop. This is not on. Often that actually can lead to the opposite. It can lead to the teenager digging their heels in. So it's just about having regular open conversations with your teen. Often you're just planting a seed that might not blossom, I guess, for a little while. And that's okay. Just planting lots of seeds until your teen is ready to move on. Having said that, that doesn't mean that you can't be having conversations with your teen about why they're vaping, what else they might be able to do to replace their vaping, chatting to them about what the harms might be, what might happen if they become addicted or dependent on this product. So you can still be having these conversations without demanding that they quit straight away. And those questions are important because some of the responses to those questions have been things like I'm using it to manage anxiety or I'm using it as a distraction. Can you take me through some of those questions and why it's important to get to the bottom of why the teenager is vaping? Yeah, so something I often say is never tear down a wall before first understanding why it's been built. The vaping might actually be serving a purpose for them. You know, people often don't just do something for no reason. So having those conversations with your teen about why is it that they're vaping? And as you pointed out, if the answer to that question is, you know, well, I'm trying to manage my anxiety or I'm really stressed with school at the moment, then making sure that before you completely take away their vaping, which is what they believe is helping them, that you're offering other alternatives to stress reduction, whether that means getting out of the house 
house a bit more, picking up a hobby that's not school related or doing some exercise, chewing gum, all of those sort of things might help. But we won't know why your teen is vaping until you ask them. And so when the t- a teenager comes to their parent and does actually want to quit, maybe they are concerned they're addicted, what are the first steps for parents? So uh, contacting the quit line uh, is a great place to start or booking in to see your GPs. But in terms of sort of other things that you can be doing if your teen is motivated or ready to quit is setting a goal. So when do they want to quit by? And then what needs to happen to sort of lead up to that? But also coming up with coping mechanisms for when your teen faces barriers. So when they're at a party and they get offered a vape, what are they going to do? Coming up with coping mechanisms for that, teaching them how to say no, what excuses they might want to come up with for why they're not vaping. Again, having those those alternatives in place if they're doing it for stress reduction. So it's not just a matter of I want to quit and then you you sort of stop. In some cases that might work, but in other cases you definitely might need to be setting some coping strategies in place for what will happen when cravings set in or there's peer pressure to consume these products. Mm. And what if there are setbacks? What if they slip up and maybe at the party they do have a vape? Well, I mean, and this goes back to what we said at the very start is not lecturing or criticising them, you know, being punitive won't help them to quit. It's sort of acknowledging that actually you just slipped up and that's okay. There's a difference between a relapse and a lapse. What can we do next time so that you might not slip up at this party? And is the advice that you're giving teenagers to quit vaping similar to what you'd maybe give to smokers or is it very different? Uh, Well, with uh, smokers, there are approved pathways. You know, it's quit smoking medication or nicotine replacement therapy combined with behavioural support or counselling from a health professional. With vaping, it's a bit different because it hasn't been around long enough. So we're still sort of figuring out what's the best approach to be helping people quit vaping. With smoking, we have a lot of evidence behind what helps. So we're a lot more confident when we give advice in that area. And more generally, what are some of maybe the make or break factors when it comes to this kind of behavioural change? Well, I mean, the environment plays a really important part in changing behaviour, which is why what we're advocating for is changes to policies so that these products are only available to people who are using them to quit smoking and who have got a prescription from their GP to do that. So I think in terms of where's the best bang for our buck? It is going to be at that government policy change so that these products aren't even entering the country to begin with and they aren't getting into the hands of children and and teenagers. So I think that's definitely where we need to go in terms of supporting behaviour change. If these products weren't available, you know, there wouldn't be any problematic behaviour to change. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michelle. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Associate Professor Michelle Jonjanellis from the University of Melbourne. We've heard about COVID as ad nauseum and everyone knows about influenza, but another potentially dangerous respiratory virus you might not be quite as familiar with is RSV or respiratory syncytial virus. It has the potential to cause pretty severe disease, especially in babies, and we've seen spikes in cases over the past couple of years in spite of COVID lockdowns. Unlike COVID and flu, a vaccine for RSV has remained elusive. But that could be about to change. 
Several vaccines for RSV are now very close to being approved in the United States, and at least one has reported that giving the vaccine to pregnant women provided protection to their babies for months after they were born. Here to talk about how soon we could see RSV vaccines here in Australia is someone who's been involved in several clinical trials for RSV and other vaccines. It's Paul Griffin. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So, Paul, you've been involved in several clinical trials for various vaccines, including RSV ones, over the years. What have been the main barriers to getting one through? Look, RSV was really discovered in the 50s and shortly thereafter we started trying to work on vaccines. But unfortunately, it's been a a really tough pathogen to crack in terms of a really effective vaccine. We've just really struggled to get high enough levels of protection to take a vaccine all the way through. But very fortunately, we now have a number of platforms that are demonstrating some really good results that do make it likely we'll have one available for use, hopefully by the end of this year, perhaps. Can you talk about the vaccines that are that are sort of getting closest? Um, are they using similar vaccine technology to what we've seen with COVID or is it more traditional stuff? A bit of both, really. I mean, one of the tough challenges with uh, RSV is that, you know, we knew there was this protein on the surface called the F protein that we wanted to target, but it does kind of change shape when the virus gets in. So we we had to work out which was the best shape to target. So now a lot of the vaccines that are coming through are targeting what's called the sort of pre-fusion F protein. And so the two front runners are protein-based vaccines from both GSK and Pfizer, mRNA vaccines as well by Moderna, and, and then some viral vector vaccines from some other companies as well. So we're lucky to have a few different platforms that look to be promising and should hopefully be available, at least one of those, if not a few of them, maybe this year or next. This surface protein changing its shape, it's almost like the virus doesn't want us to be able to beat it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it certainly has been a big challenge, but we're lucky we've got the tools now to be able to work out these sort of problems and and come up with solutions. There's some similar work happening for COVID as well, but at least in the RSV space, you know, working this out uh, has now been done. And, you know, that gives us some some really good uh, vaccines that look to have uh, maybe solved that problem. So if one is approved here in Australia in the next couple of months, like you suggest, who would be likely to sort of be first off the mark to forgetting it? Well, we know there's two really big populations at risk here, and it's the youngest children and adults as well. And so they're the two populations we really want to target. And it looks like the vaccines for the elderly will probably be where we start. There's great data also on giving these vaccines, particularly to pregnant women, to not only protect them, but also their babies. And I, I expect that'll probably be the, the second type of approval we have after we have them available for the elderly. Yeah, that's that research that's recently been published showing about 80% protection for the first 90 days of life for bubs that were the mum received the vaccine while they were pregnant. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's uh, that, that's a huge finding, really, because we know this is a, a an infection that causes devastating consequences in in young kids. We luckily we do have some other interventions. We have some antibody therapies that are now available, and that might certainly go a long way to helping. But, you know, vaccinating the mums, as I say, we kind of get a three for one almost, and that we protect the mum in the process, but we also give great protection to the babies as well. So, And that's a, a proven strategy for other infections already in terms of whooping cough and the flu. So it's not the first time we've done this, and it works really well. So you and I have spoken about RSV vaccines on the health report before about a year ago. And when we spoke then, you said that maybe one day in the future, we could see a triple barrel vaccine that would protect against COVID, flu and RSV all in one shot. Is that something that's still on the horizon? Yeah, look, I think so. And, you know, of course, we, we can't say for sure until all the clinical trials are completed and we're certain of the safety and efficacy. And that is looking very likely with at least a few candidates. Certainly using the mRNA technology lends itself really well to 
being able to combine to protect against all three viruses. And there's also some protein-based approaches that are combining all three as well. And so, you know, that'll be a huge step forward because we know that keeping up to date with vaccines now is more challenging as COVID's clearly going to require ongoing vaccinations. And when we have RSV vaccines, that's going to obviously add a, another vaccine as well. So combining them, I think, will be a really effective approach at getting good levels of uptake. Time frame. Look, it's hard to say. And again, you know, as soon as the clinical trials are done and that's the right decision, these vaccines will be approved. I actually think that perhaps won't be this year or next year for us and maybe 2025, which sounds a, a long way away, but really that's quite close where you consider how far we've come with COVID vaccines in the space of time that we uh, have been doing this already. We're watching it eagerly. Paul, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Associate Professor Paul Griffin is the Director of Infectious Diseases at MARTA Health Services in Brisbane. And that's it for the Health Report this week. Catch you next time. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.